House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm at the controls, Al Warren, and joining me as a co-host today is John Copenhaver. How are you hey, doing? Hey, Al. <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I just I was practicing your name, you know. Oh, that's good. Uh, I've, I've been good screwing up names all name. week. I've been doing it all week, <laughs> so it's not it's not just that. It's just it's crazy. So anyway, so you're almost double shot. You're almost double shot. That's what it would. Be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get fully vaxxed as of tomorrow. So here's yeah. here's hoping no side effects. Grinder, look out! Here he comes. <laughs> um, yeah, I've had I had the AstraZeneca, and like I said, had little side effects, but um, it's all different. Each person's different, so it's nothing to worry about. Uh, though I have been buying a lot of Microsoft and you know, Bill <laughs> Gates, you know that sort of thing. Jewish laser beams. Um, <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, oh, yeah, I know it's crazy. Well, today we have a special guest, an author that's written quite a few books, and he does the Henry Rios mystery series, and uh, the latest book is uh, Lies with Man. So, Michael Nava, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, John. Hey, how you doing, Michael? Great to see you. Good to see, good to see you, too. Yeah. Oh, your, your your image on the uh, on my screen. <laughs> Great to see you. Yeah. For a, a picture, it's just lovely. Um, wow. So, Michael, um, you haven't been on this show before, so but you know this is a, a series you've been writing about this, um, and I guess Henry Rios is a detective, right? Well, he's actually a criminal defense lawyer. Oh. Okay. Uh, so he's a gay Mexican American criminal defense lawyer. Uh, the books take place in California, mostly in Los Angeles, although there are excursions into San Francisco and the Central Valley. What, what was kind of the, um, when you started writing this mystery series, um, what, what was kind of the um, concept behind it? Like, where did you want to take it? Well, I actually did not set out to write uh, a mystery series oh. <laughs> or to be a mystery writer. Um, so uh, I just wanted to write a novel. I was in my 20s. I was at law school. And um, I've always liked mysteries. And I thought if I wrote a mystery, then I would have to learn some of the aspects of craft, like uh, plot, dialogue, characters, that I would not have uh, learned had I just written the first novel that every young writer writes, which is that self-indulgent semi-autobiographical, angst-filled, you know, novel. So um, really it was just a way of teaching myself how to write fiction because before then I just read poetry. And uh, my inspirations were, you know, I like, I like um, Raymond Chandler's, very problematic on many levels, but still um, I like Philip Marlowe, and I was especially influenced by a mystery writer named J Joseph Hansen, who was the first uh, mystery writer who had an openly gay character, um, an insurance investigator named Dave Branstetter. And Joe started writing his books in 71 is when the first one was published, and I read them through the 70s and into the 80s. And so I thought, oh, this is, this is something I, I would like to do. So I really wrote the first book as um, kind of a lark, 
and it was rejected by 11 publishers, 13 publishers, actually. Yeah, 13 publishers rejected it. And then uh, a small gay publisher took it up. Uh, this was 1986. And uh, it was reviewed in the New York Times. <laughs> it was published as a paperback. And it was reviewed in the mystery columns in the New York Times. And so Sasha Allison, the publisher, said, well, do you have another one in you? And I thought, sure. And um, so I wrote another one. And Sasha published that one. And after that, I was contacted by a New York literary agent who said, if you keep writing these books, I can get you a deal with a big publisher. And I said, well, okay. <laughs> so that's how I became a mystery writer. So I had no, I didn't really think about this as a series. It was never intended to be a series, which is why I've gone back and rewritten the first books in the series now that I to fill in some blanks that I missed the first time around. Uh, so, so that's important to you to go back and kind of rewrite something if you think it needs changing. Well, when the rights to the books reverted to me in 2015 um, from the last publisher who had licensed the uh, who had licensed the rights, I went back and I read the entire series and I realized, you know, um, I didn't know it was going to be a series with the first book, and so I didn't do any of the foreshadowing that I might have done had I thought it was going to be a series. Uh, there were also a couple of chronological and thematic gaps in the first two books. So I wanted to go back and, um, yeah, rewrite those and write two new books and sort of make the whole series more consistent um, and more uh, comprehensive of the period of time that I'm writing about, which is basically, you know, the early, 90, the early 80s to the late 90s. So was it important to put um, the main character as a gay gay man? Yeah, I'm a gay man, and uh, it never occurred to me that he wouldn't be a gay man, partly because Joe's, Joe Hansen's books really gave me permission to do that, uh, also because I've been out since I was 17. So, um, And also because, uh, you know, the thing about the – classic noir private detective is that he's an outsider. Uh, he's generally despised by respectable society, which then calls upon him to clean up its messes. So he has a ringside seat to their hypocrisies. And to me, the position of being a gay man was very much like being a private investigator in the noir novel. I mean, we were despised by respectable society uh, for uh, no good reason. And yet we experienced ourselves as like decent, intelligent people. And um, we also got to see a lot of the hypocrisy of straight society, which condemned us, but had its own its own skeletons in the closet. So for me, Rios was the ultimate outsider, uh, is the ultimate outsider. And um, that's very consistent with the whole tradition of American war, I think. So Henry Rios, where, where did he come from? Who is he to you? Well, I mean, of course, uh, I borrowed a lot of my own uh, life. In he's a, I, I practiced law for 35 years. I'm a graduate of Stanford Law School. Um, I was a prosecutor, not a criminal defense lawyer, but that's where I got my trial experience. I'm a third-generation Californian. So I gave him those aspects of my character. You know, he's a gay third-generation Mexican-American in California who went to a law school very similar to Stanford, 
um, uh, and who became a criminal defense lawyer. Um, you know, because he's kind of a, a cross between a gay Philip Marlowe and a gay Perry Mason is, is where he came from. Well, Perry Mason was right there. <laughs> Perry Mason was created by Earl Stanley Gardner, who was a public defender working in the Central Valley of California. So, yeah, there are many. The, the circle goes round and round. How much do you think you put of yourself into that character? Well, I mean, that's a hard question to answer because I don't really know. I mean, other people assume I put more of myself in the character than I see of myself in him. Um, I think, I don't know. I mean, I don't think in terms of, in terms of the biography, obviously, there are similarities, but in terms of temperament, I think he's much more serious, um, and uh, passionate about the law than I've ever been. Uh, uh, and uh, much more, uh, uh, you know, I feel a certain level of attachment from him. So uh, I don't know. I, I, I really, that's a hard question to answer. I guess every reader has to decide. Well, yeah, it, it's just, it's, it's interesting to find out if the writer is, you know, putting a lot of their, um, you know, a lot of their emotions, their their ideas, their feelings into a character in the book. I think that, yes, in that sense, there's a lot of me in the book, but it's not personal. There's a lot of me in the sense of the things um, that, uh, the things that piss me off. <laughs> Injustice. Um, bigotry, that stuff, um, that gets into the book through his eyes. Um, I call my books are Mysteries with a Mission, which is a mm -hmm. phrase I borrow from a, a friend of mine at UCLA who teaches a class called Mysteries with a Mission. So so you kind of have a subtext then. So what, what would be um, something you want people to get out of the book? So when someone reads, let's say, Lies with Man, um, there, there's something more than the story you want them to walk away with. Sure. So Lies with Man, which was set in L.A. in 1986, um, takes up two actual historical, uh, is based on historical events. One of them was the, a ballot initiative that would have allowed um, county health officials to quarantine people who are HIV positive into camps. And the other one is the, a corrupt, the corruption uh, at LAPD. So uh, I want the reader to come away knowing that uh, much, many of the things that are uh, in the news today, uh, you know, issues of social justice and police misconduct and um, and even the effects of a, an epidemic uh, were present 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I mean, we are in a long period of history where, where there's a great deal of social change and um, I'm just reminding people that none of this is new, the battles are the same now as they were in the 80s and 90s. 
No, Michael, I, I remember when uh, we were talking about um, carved and bone, and, and then, of course, this book as well. They're kind of filling in the, the gaps, um, I guess, in the series, right? You're going back in time and filling in these gaps. But you also mentioned sort of needing to see them through, like, like a more historical lens because of the different time period. Is that, is that also part of what's going on? Um, I guess with your rewriting of the books and, and, and then these new books. Sure. So, you know, the first book was published in 1986, um, the second in 88, and then there was one every two years um, until 2000. And what was happening in the gay community then, of course, was the AIDS epidemic. And so my books, like, you know, any gay male writer writing that period had to address it. So um, that became a theme in the books. But at the time I was writing it, I was writing from the trenches, you know, where we didn't really know what was going to happen and people were mm-hmm. dying. It was, a, it was a terminal diagnosis. So now, from this perspective, I know what happened in the AIDS epidemic as far as it involves gay men, which is that there were effective treatments and people stopped dying. So um, one of the things I didn't write about at the time was the onset of the uh, epidemic, um, and I wanted to go back and write about that, so that's why I wrote um, Carved in Bone. And the other thing I wanted to write about was just the intense conflict between are the religious right in the gay community, which is sort of at the heart of um, Lies with Man. So, yeah, so now I, I know what happened. <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 not in, I'm not in the trenches right. avoiding the bullets. I'm actually uh, sort of standing and looking back. And so it's a very different perspective. And, um, and it's one I think that uh, deserves to be told because we have a very short memory of this country. So. Yes, yes, we do. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you, um, when you write a book like this, and, and you're, you're kind of involving the right-wing Christian as kind of an enemy, um, do you ever worry about backlash? Or what, what do you, are you, in a way, are you trying to um, just bring it to the forefront? Yeah, no, I don't worry about backlash. I mean, you know, <laughs> right-wing Christians don't read Henry Rios, so I'm not too worried about that. <laughs> um, I, I didn't choose um, conservative Christians to be my enemy. They chose me to be their enemy um, because they essentially deny my right to exist. And um, you can't really reason with bigots. All you can do is um, highlight the inconsistencies and the hypocrisies of their position and resist them. Uh, and that was as true in 1986 as it is today. I mean, you know, things happen. People think, well, marriage equality, the battle's over, but it's really not. I mean, the Christian right is as active as ever, and they're, they're constantly devising new ways to undermine and attack LGBTQ people, um, they're especially focused on trans people right now, but um, these, this whole notion in the law of religious exemptions for churches uh, that would exempt them from anti-discrimination laws that protect uh, 
gay and lesbian people, this is just the latest tactic in a very, very long battle. Mm. I, I just, I, it, where do you see it going, though? You know, you, you talk about this, this is the same sort of, let's say, battle that's been going on since the 80s and in in, in slightly different way, but um, do you ever see it really ending? Well, I do see, I mean, there will always be a hardcore of right-wing evangelicals, uh, militant right-wing evangelicals who would like to, um, who would like to send gay people back into the closet, if not actually physically exterminate them. Um, but I think the demographics are against them. I was reading recently that for the first time uh, since the polls have begun that fewer than 50% of Americans identify with a religion, um, that the biggest uh, category that people identify with when they're asked, you know, what if, about their religious affiliations is unaffiliated. And that is, I think, a direct response to the evangelical Christians' embrace of these hard right-wing Trump white nationalist ideology. I mean, people, young people, they just they see this a kind of fascism and they're turned off by it. And that's also true in the mainstream. I mean, you know, Catholicism, the mainstream Protestant uh, lines have been losing people, shedding people for years. So I do see uh, in the long run that... Um, the evangelicals will become a smaller and smaller part of um, the social and cultural conversation, but they make a lot of noise no matter what their numbers are. Yeah. So when you write this book, any of these in this series, especially this one here, um, how does it change you, like the process of writing at the end of the book and, you, and you're putting it out? Um, what changes have, does it put you through? Well, um, you know, I, I, when I started writing it, I so this is my advice to all writers who are writing about people and groups that they're not a, that they're not part of or familiar with, which is do your homework. So before I started writing it, I read a lot of memoirs of fundamentalists. Evangelicals, both people who had left the church and people who'd stayed in it. And I read a number of books about, you know, the theology of fundamentalism. I really steeped myself in it because I wanted to present um, a fair representation of their beliefs, not necessarily a sympathetic one because I'm not in sympathy with them, but, you know, uh, a fair one, an accurate one. And I think I did. Um, and so in the process of writing the book, it was just really interesting to me to really get down um, into the weeds and to read what um, what the theological uh, basis of American fundamentalism is. Uh, I kind of knew what it was, but I didn't actually read the people who the actual theological basis. So and I came away from that thinking that's pretty scary <laughs> <laughs> these yeah. beliefs are really scary yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, there's a lot of them too. How long does it take you to actually put that together then, like to write one of these books? So it takes about a year from beginning to end. Um, it's that's been pretty consistent. And when you're getting these characters, so when you create characters that are on the evangelical part side. Um, how, how do you create the personality, and, and where do you draw that from? Well, again, so uh, I did read a lot of first-person accounts of people who are in the movement uh, and people who have left of the movement, so I borrowed heavily from their experience. And I also was very interested in sort of the history of American, uh, the American evangelical movement from the late 60s to the mid-80s. Because in the late 60s, you know, there was this whole Jesus people movement, which was actually kind of related to the hippie movement. Um, and it was when young people were embracing Jesus out of a sense of joy. And that slowly morphed into um, what became the religious right. Uh, so that was really interesting to me. Um, so the main, the main evangelical character in the book is a preacher who undergoes that transformation, who starts out with the Jesus people movement and then ends up as um, as the head of a large uh, fundamentalist church in Los Angeles. And his, his ambivalence, really, about the direction that his faith is taking, because um, Evangelicals traditionally did, did not want to be involved in politics. In fact, you know, they believed that the last days were eminent, that Jesus was coming, and so that they should be detached from the world and basically build sanctuaries um, and to prepare for it. So this whole shift into being involved in politics, that was, uh, that was relatively, that was, that was, that was upsetting to many of those, um, many people of that persuasion in the late 70s and early 80s when it started, uh, when Falwell and the others started to emerge. It's a very interesting story. Yeah, and and Jesus, uh, he takes a long time to come. You know, <laughs> uh, Christians have been waiting for him since the day after he died. <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, it's the medicine he's on. It, it prevents him from coming. Well, I think that the uh, the uh, he just operates at a very different time scale than we do here on Earth. So the day after tomorrow for him may be 100,000 years in Earth years. So. Yeah, but, you know, the thing is, I, I, I you know, I, I write true crime and cults and stuff, and a lot of t people I've met in prison, they all find Jesus in prison. So he, he does drop in. Yes. Right? He's hanging out in the jail cells. I mean, that whole notion of Jesus as my personal savior is a very strange one to me because it has no social or cultural. It's like Jesus has saved me, and that somehow liberates me to hate you because Jesus hasn't saved you. And it's very, uh, it is very cultish. Well, yeah. 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 God talks to me. Right. Doesn't talk what, to you. And what he says is that, <laughs> I'm good and you're not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm righteous and you're not. Exactly. Um, you know, but then, you know, you have to admit, I think a lot of the religion in this sort of aspect, it fills a lot of, a lot of holes or places where people 
feel um, they need something, you know. Well, I think at its best, um, it does give people a moral and ethical compass. And uh, listen, I grew up uh, Catholic, and I know a lot of Catholics who are just really some of the most decent, loving, and compassionate people you'd ever meet who don't share the prejudices of the institutional church. Um, they're very much, their faith gives them, uh, tells them um, that they are responsible for, you know, taking care of other people. So I don't, it's hard to say really on balance whether religion is a good or bad thing, but certainly I've known people who are religious who are just really salt of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're writing and, and this story here, you're, you're kind of taking a person and um, um, there's been a, there's a bombing um, pastor is killed and uh, your man has to defend um, this person. Um, how hard is that to write? So, yeah, I mean, the basic premise is that Rios is, uh, so there's this proposition to, that it would allow people, it would allow county health officials to put HIV-positive people into concentration camps, basically, to quarantine them. Um, there's a, a gay activist group that's opposing it with acts of civil disobedience, and one of its members is accused of blowing up a church and killing its pastor. The church, the pastor was in favor of the initiative. So... Um, He's now faced with a felony murder charge, which in California is uh, death eligible. And Rios, you know, who signed on basically to, like, uh, advise these people when they were getting arrested in demonstrations, finds himself dealing with, finds himself with a client in a capital murder case. Um, you know, I was a lawyer for a long time, so the legal parts are quite easy for me to write, you know take that much research <laughs> and I think my I think the the hard part is to make the law interesting and entertaining to people who aren't lawyers that's that's what I work at because things yeah. like the felony murder rule you know or uh, a pitches motion I mean those things have to be explained in terms that not only tell people what they are but are kind of interesting to them yeah, I think it's, it's I think it's a really difficult thing to do. I just read um, a trans uh, uh, woman writer named Robin Geigel, her new book called By Way of Sorrow, and it's a legal thriller. And she does a really wonderful job of kind of you you know explaining a lot of the legality and still keeping it engaging, which I think is just I mean, I would find that personally as a writer very difficult to do. <laughs> Yeah, but then you could just you could just send it to me if I would help you out. <laughs> <laughs> That's very generous. <laughs> so I have a question. I have a question. Um, you know about another thing that you're involved with, uh, Amble Press, um, which uh, is an arm of Bywater um, uh, Publishers, right? And can you talk a little bit about your involvement in that? Um, it's it's certainly something exciting from a publishing standpoint. Sure. So Bywater Books is a 
there's a pretty well-established lesbian press, and a couple of years ago, its owners decided that they wanted to start publishing other LGBTQ writers, um, so they created Amble Press, and uh, about a year ago, I became managing editor um, of the press. So um, uh, our mission is... I'm particularly interested in publishing queer writers of color, but generally, um, you know, just sort of across the whole spectrum of LGBTQ writers. So, Lies with Man is actually the, is published by Amble. Um, that was part of the deal. They wanted to publish next Rios book. And I've got like five or six other books in various stages of production and they'll start dropping in June. And, um, it's great. I really, I'm really happy to be part of that project. Yeah, it just it felt um, like I mean, it's it sort of the and you're seeing more of this in, in the publishing world. This moving to um, you know small imprints that are focusing on um, you know more own voices or mm-hmm. you know it, it you know there's some a little there's like a real sort of energy in the in these different corners that it's exciting and Amble seems to be very much a part of that. I'm excited to read. Uh, what you what you guys are putting together? So I mean, I just wrote a three part essay for the Los Angeles Review of Books about the history of gay and lesbian publishing, which will appear uh, in June over the first three weeks of June. Which oh, wonderful! Which emphasizes that small presses have always been really the backbone of LGBTQ writers because the big publishers so rarely publish us, and that's always been true, and it still is true. Yes. So you think it's still difficult um, to to publish or get a book published with one of the big publishers? Uh, Is it because it's the gay writer, or do you think it's because the characters are gay? I think that, uh, you know, the excuse that the big publishers um, have, make is that, well, you know, we're in the business of selling books, and our books have to make a certain amount of money, and we just, we don't think there's a large enough audience for um, books by LGBTQ writers, which is total crap, of course, yeah. because, you know, <laughs> um so they publish a few writers. It's quite tokenistic. It always has been it's so that they can say, yeah, well, we do. You know, okay, we have gay writers. Um, I, I think it's because um, they, don't, they don't want to put the work into developing the audience for these books, um, uh, really. And I think that, there, there, that there's definitely lingering uh, homophobia within the publishing industry, just as there's lingering racism within the big publishing industry. Mm-hmm. You know, I look, I get book lists, and I read book lists, and um, I read two of their publishing and fiction and mysteries, and every time it's the same. I would say 90-plus percent of the writers are white, straight writers, and um, all, I assume that all the reviewers are white, straight reviewers. So, if you're not, uh, if you're uh, a person, a writer of color or an LGBTQ writer, it's very difficult to get your book, to get an agent, to get published by a big press, and then to get reviewed. Right. Yep. What do you suggest yeah. for someone then? So, if there's a, if, if if a young writer 
person starting out now and uh, they're part of the uh, gay community, what would you suggest for someone like that? Well, I mean, I, would, I think that they should definitely try to breach the walls because some people do make it through. I mean, my books, uh, the, the original Rios books were published by HarperCollins and Putnam, and um, that Putnam, my editor, was the same guy who edited Tom Clancy. Um, so I knew where I was on that food chain. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not impossible to get published by those big uh, presses, but so I would say, yeah, go definitely go out, go for it. But also keep in mind that there are these smaller presses, um, which uh, which in some ways will give you. They may not have the reach of the big publishers in terms of marketing and distribution, but you get a lot more personal attention, and you'll be published by people who have a commitment to the kind of book that you've written. So. Where do you go from here? What, what's next for, for Michael? Well, so in 2015, I wrote an historical novel that was published by the University of Wisconsin Press called City of Palaces, which took place sort of in the beginning of the Mexican Revolution of 1910. Uh, and that was the first of a trilogy. So I'm working on the second book in that series um, now. And then I wanted to write a standalone crime fiction uh, novel based on a death penalty case that I personally handled when I was a, a staff attorney at the California Supreme Court in which, I mean, I'd practiced law for 30-plus years. and This was one of the two cases where it was clear that the defendant was innocent. And this defendant had been sitting on death row for 30 years. So I worked on the case at the court and was able to persuade the court to give him a new hearing, and he was ultimately released. But I wanted to write a book about that case. Um, so that's the next crime piece, bit of crime fiction I'll be writing. Oh, now, are you, are you going to do a – is that going to be true crime? Or are you actually yeah, – or, or are you doing a yeah. – <laughs> Well, I think I'm really great, great minds. I, I think I'll write it as a novel only because I'm too lazy to do the footwork. <laughs> true crime novel. <laughs> well, but um, it's well, I, I think it's interesting. But yeah, there's a lot of footwork. But you've been involved in the case, so you know people already. Well, and I have thousands of pages of. Um, of court violates of briefs and transcripts and stuff. The reason I might do it as fiction um, is because I could take liberties uh, with some of the characters and their psychology that I don't think I could if I were writing it as true crime. Um, and I can, I can, yeah, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure yet, but I think I'm, I'm tending toward thinking of making it a novel. Yeah. Well, I guess it gives you more freedom and um, on on deciding what you want to uh, to put in that book, right? Gives you more right, advantage. and th more freedom and in, in emphasizing the the thematic, you know, what the thematic emphasis is, because the defendant was basically an illiterate Mexican farm worker who was. Uh, convicted of sexually assaulting and murdering 
the two-year-old daughter of his girlfriend. And uh, he was convicted, sentenced to death. His appeal was turned down by the California Supreme Court and all the federal courts. And then 25 years later, on a habeas petition, um, he presented evidence that really thoroughly demonstrated uh, that there that the evidence of sexual abuse was, in fact, um, that there was no sexual abuse. Uh, that what he, what what was what was deemed to be evidence of sexual abuse was simply uh, the result of the injuries she sustained when um, which when whatever happened to her happened to her. And the mystery is no one exactly knows what happened to her. Um, his story is she went outside to play, and then a little later she came in the house clutching her stomach and collapsed. And um, so, but but she was injured. She died. He was the caretaker because the, the mother was at work, and so he was the one that they focused on uh, in this very conservative county of California. Um, but it turns out that there was no sexual assault, that um, anyway, it's a very long. It's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Now, do you have a website or um, grinder account that you can <laughs> come find you? And, 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 I, I, I'm not. I'm not on Grinder. Uh, <laughs> well, Scruff, uh, whatever. I'm not on Grinder, <laughs> Scruff, Recon, or whatever. All the the other. <laughs> 21. Uh, I'm a happily married man. Um, uh, but my website is uh, michaelnabarider.com and uh, Facebook. I have a Facebook page, also Michael Nabarider. Okay, we're going to put that up on our site. Listeners can find you with one click. And, uh, but, you know, I'm sorry about the grinder, listeners, but you, know, <laughs> uh, you can still find them. Um, wow. So, hey, did, did, did this whole last year affect your writing? Did it sort of get in the way of of performance for you? Uh, not really. I mean, you know, it didn't really change my work. I mean, uh, you know, writers write at home anyway. We sit in the little rooms and make up stories, so that actually didn't change. <laughs> what freaked me out at the beginning was I would leave my house and I would go down to the local supermarket and I would see the lines and and the the shelves would be empty. You know, one week would be toilet paper, the next week it would be salt. And I thought, oh, <laughs> this must have been what it was like in the old Soviet Union. You know, <laughs> you see a line and you just get into it, <laughs> and you see something available and you stock up. That really freaked me out. Yeah, yeah. You just don't know how people are going to react. You know, um, but you know, a bit. Just with the darkness and the unsurety, you know, the the whole idea, you know, you got Trump in and you had all the stuff going on. Um, yeah. Does it, it make a, it, it as, you know, it's just a curious thing because you write fiction, so you're writing a lot of your own emotion into the into the stories. Um, I just wonder if it seeps in there, a little bit of darkness or something. My books are pretty dark anyway. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, so maybe, so maybe, maybe it's a little more. Maybe lies with madness a little more um, 
a little more impassioned than it might have been otherwise. Um, I mean, the pandemic has been basically slow motion trauma for all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, little little jolts of trauma. Um, yeah, I mean, I've certainly had days when I just, what's the point of getting out of bed? Um, but then I do it anyway because I'm, I'm disciplined that way. Right, right, right. Go about your day. Right. Well, that's, that's really interesting. It's good to, it's good to talk to uh, an accomplished writer such as yourself. Well, um, it's good to talk to two accomplished writers such as yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hardly. I'm just jonky things. Uh, John's the real writer there, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. And John has, a, John has a new book coming out. He does. Yes, and I there's do. There's going to be pictures, too. <laughs> <laughs> I and look forward to it. His grinder account. He yeah. has a grinder account. Yeah, he's got several. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happily married. Yeah, yeah. Right. I've heard that before. Sure. Um, well, our guest has been uh, Michael Nava, and the book, his newest book, which is just coming out here, it's called Lies with Man, and it's a Henry Reels mystery. I believe it's book eight. I've lost count. <laughs> it's eight or nine or ten. It's one of those. Wow. Um, well, thank you for being here, Michael. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, John. Great talking. Thank you, Michael. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. <laughs> By George, he's got it. It is the end. I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.